0: They are so adaptable and so opportunistic. They like find a way to to live and survive and be successful in all of these really harsh places, right? And they, they make it work. Their kind of ingenuity in, in in doing that is really impressive and kind of inspiring, I think, sometimes.
1: Welcome back to the Voices of Greater Yellowstone, where we share the stories and science from the Greater Yellowstone ecosystem. We are releasing this special episode on Halloween, and it covers a topic we've been wanting to do since we started this podcast back in 2021. To fit with the spooky theme of the day, we're spending some time with one of Greater Yellowstone's most enigmatic and charismatic creatures. If you've been to Old Faithful in Yellowstone National Park, you've definitely seen these beautiful, surprisingly large black birds that seem dead set on making mischief. That's right, we are talking ravens. Ravens can be found throughout Greater Yellowstone and are members of the Corvid family, which also includes crows, magpies, jays, and more these birds are known for their intelligence, mimicry skills, and penchant for taking advantage of and robbing unsuspecting Yellowstone visitors. But beyond giving tourists plenty of stories, what role do ravens play in this remarkable ecosystem? Today we're chatting with Lauren Walker, wildlife biologist and former member of the Yellowstone Bird Program. While at Yellowstone, she initiated a monitoring avian productivity and survivorship banding station and participated in many avian research projects, including some focused on ravens. Lauren's also written scientific papers including population responses of common ravens to reintroduced gray wolves and recreation changes the use of wild landscapes by corvids. So safe to say she's the person you want to chat with about Greater Yellowstone's ravens. We cover a lot of fascinating ground today, including how to tell the difference between ravens and crows, what we know about the intelligence of ravens and their relationships with wolves, and some fun facts even us raven nuts didn't know. All right, let's hop into Ravens, Yellowstone's clever corvids.
0: So I am Lauren Walker, I am a bird biologist, and um, I have a graduate degree from the University of Washington studying wildlife ecology.
1: Wonderful. Um, So tell us a little bit about how you found yourself where you are now, like go into a little more of your academic and professional journey to becoming a wildlife biologist.
0: Yeah. um, A lot of people ask me now, like, oh, were you always into birds as a kid? And I think I always appreciated being outdoors, but I was not a birder um, when I was younger. After undergrad, um, well, so in... In undergraduate, um, I studied geology and biology. I thought I was going to do paleontology and you know dig up dinosaurs. And this is this was my you know my dream. And then I went to work for an environmental consulting company after undergrad and did some paleontology work. But we also um, did a variety of other stuff. And one of the folks that worked there was an ornithologist, and we had some bird-related jobs doing, you know, nest surveys and things. And I really grew to love it. And then after a few years, I pursued grad school and decided to to try to study birds. Awesome.
1: I love that. And I love that you called out that people always ask if you were always into birds, because that was definitely going to be one of my next questions, which is like, <laughs> tell me about your bird-obsessed childhood. But no, that is actually in some ways even more interesting that you sort of found yourself there and decided to tug at that thread a little bit. So I love that. Um, so You know, this podcast is, of course, focused on the greater Yellowstone ecosystem. So let's talk a little bit more about your time as a wildlife biologist in Yellowstone National Park, since I know that you worked in Yellowstone for a number of years um, as part of the park's bird program. So starting with just like, what is Yellowstone's bird program? What's its goal? Um, And what was your role in that project?
0: Yeah, so I joined um, the Yellowstone bird program in 2016 and I was there for about four and a half years. the park has a mandate to kind of have an understanding of what's going on with the animals and the vegetation and you know just in general with the park. and there are a variety of different work groups within the Yellowstone Center for Resources, which is where all these kind of the umbrella over all these different groups. and there's a bison group and a vegetation group and a wolf group and and then there's a there's a bird group and there's lots of other small small folks in there as well like there's a hydrologist there's a GIS team there's there's all these different people um and the w- bird program you know has a really vast mandate right there's a lot of different species that fall under that you know the wolf team gets their whole you know whole group of people and they study one species but but we have a mandate to study a lot and it's and it's basically to both monitor what's, you know, how these different species and species groups are doing throughout the park, but also to, you know, respond if we see a population decline or, you know, some other issue that we need to um, address to try to boost up these birds in the park. And and the Park Service doesn't do that for every issue. Um, you know, climate change is kind of this weird amorphous thing where we're like well it's human caused or most people think it's human caused but like it's hard to have a direct connection but if there's a direct human you know impact to to a bird or a bird species and we can do something about it then that's when the bird program steps in to to give those birds a boost if we can
1: What, like, what would be an example of a direct human-caused impact to birds that you would see in a landscape like Yellowstone National Park?
0: Yeah, so, um, I mean, kind of a classic example would be uh, DDT, Mm. Silent Spring, like the whole um, release of this chemical throughout the country, not just in Yellowstone, that really impacted mostly larger birds, raptors, um, pelicans. So amongst the Species in Yellowstone, there was um, big declines of bald eagle, osprey, peregrine falcons, and peregrines were actually extirpated from the park completely. Oh, wow. um, and an action that the park took in the 1980s was to establish some hack sites to release captive reared peregrine falcons. So that's, that's a good example. Um, we also close certain areas of the park like certain trails when we know there's species nesting nearby or that might be particularly sensitive nesters to folks walking on the shoreline. Um, So things like that to help um, ensure that they can nest successfully.
1: Okay, interesting. So, when you are studying birds in Yellowstone, like what are you actually doing? Are you, you know, laying on your back in the grass looking at the sky, waiting for birds to go by? Are you looking at, you know, camera traps like they do with, you know, wolves and cougars? Like, what is your sort of day to day monitoring activity look like?
0: It varies a lot. So, there are definitely days where we sit in the grass and wait for birds to fly by. Um, and so, a lot of the the spring and the fall is looking at either raptor nesting or raptor migration. We spend a lot of time doing that. Um, so we have places where we have known bald eagle nests, known osprey nests, um, peregrine falcons that have nested on the same set of cliffs for, for decades. And so we monitor those sites every year and just try to keep track of uh, whether those birds are nesting or wh- whether those nest sites are being used. We don't know if it's the same birds or not. And then whether they're successful or not, how many young they are able to fledge out of the nest. So we'll find a a hillside you know, nearby or whatever, and then we can get a view with binoculars or a spotting scope. And we, we keep an eye until we see some sign of a bird coming in and out of the nest ledge or um, you know a parent bringing food to the young things like that and then we also in the summer we do similar types of breeding monitoring for um, trumpeter swans common loons um, some other kind of sensitive species that breed a little bit later than the raptors Um, and again it's the same idea where we have kind of known sites Swans are pretty noticeable. They're big, they're white. Um, so, we do kind of try to do a comprehensive um, understanding of where they are in the park. We do a lot of aerial flights to do um, surveys from the sky. But um, we also have, you know, ponds where we expect them to show up every year where they usually do and they usually nest. And so, we go and see how successful they were this year, how many young they, they were able to fledge. Um, And then we do habitat monitoring for songbirds. So we have, or habitat specific monitoring. So we have point counts set up in forested areas and we do different types of forests. We have point counts in grasslands. We have point counts in um, riparian areas. And those point counts are just designed, they're a standardized way of measuring how, how many birds are there and how many different species are there. Um, so we can compare year to year if we're seeing big trends in diversity or big trends in, you know, individual species abundance.
1: Yeah. Okay. So pretty wide range of approaches there. Then that's all sounds so interesting and cool. A little,
2: a
0: little bit of everything.
1: Yeah. yeah. <laughs> a little bit of everything. Love that. Yeah. Um, you've mentioned now like quite a few specific bird species do you know roughly how many different species of birds live in live in or maybe pass through Yellowstone
0: yeah I think the approximate count of um, species that we think are breeding in the park is around 150 oh wow and then species that have Been seen, documented, have moved moved through the park uh, during migration. I think it bumps up to about three hundred, so it's it's quite a few. Yeah. Um,
1: Uh, Do you have any particularly memorable moments or stories from your time at Yellowstone?
0: So I was telling you a little bit um, before we started recording about uh, my previous experience. I mostly had worked with songbirds before coming to the park, um, and So the opportunity to, you know, closely monitor raptors and some of these water birds that I had never really worked with before uh, was, was really interesting to me. And one of the um, things we do, we did in the park, and I think it's still ongoing is releasing trumpeter swan signets um, in the fall to try to boost the swan population. And so I got to help a few times, you know, carry a swan signet out to a, out to a river in the park and get to release it into the wild and see it swim with its, uh, you know, it, the group that we released it with, it's kind of captive reared siblings. And, um, it was really rewarding.
1: Oh, that sounds amazing. Um, so today in honor of October, I would say, Uh, we want to spend a little bit of time with you talking about one of Greater Yellowstone's most fascinating and charismatic avian residents, and that would be the raven. Um, So starting with some very basic basics, uh, what is a raven?
0: A raven is uh, a large black bird. Um, They're actually the largest songbird. um, So... That's a fun fact for you. They're I love it. they're um, when you when you see them in person up close, they're pretty. It's memorable. They're very large and they make a statement. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, they are they're wide ranging. they all use a ton of different types of habitats, climates, ecosystems. Um, so they can be found pretty much anywhere in the world on any continent, um, other than. Antarctica and um, they have a really diverse diet they will eat you know anything from like seeds and fruit and insects in the summer to you know scavenging carrion in the winter they're they're predators they'll steal songbird eggs they're pretty um, pretty opportunistic okay. so they can kind of deal with a lot of different scenarios different habitats different, resources that whatever is available to them they're pretty impressive
1: yeah interesting um first I, I did not know that they were even a songbird or categorized as a songbird. so that fact that they're the largest songbird hit me as surprising on two levels so i love that <laughs> um of course we have to ask you the like million dollar question which is something that When we asked listeners for questions, it came up many times. But don't worry, listeners, we already prepared ourselves to ask this one, which was how are ravens and crows different?
0: So kind of superficially, they look similar, right? They're just all black birds. But ravens, again, they're much, much bigger. Mm -hmm. So that's like a big clue. If you saw them next to each other, you'd be like, no way. Like obviously these are different birds. Um, the ravens have a much kind of chunkier bill, okay. a lot longer, but also just like thicker, um, if that makes any sense. They tend to have kind of longer throat feathers. So a lot of the times when they call out or they kind of stretch, you can see these kind of long feathers on their throats, like hackles. Mm. Um, So that's something that distinguishes them from crows. And when they're flying or they're kind of spreading their tail feathers out, you can see that their tail makes a V shape as opposed to a crow, which is more of like a, a curve um, at the end of the tail, more of a C shape. Okay. Beyond that, crows can be found in areas where ravens are, but in general, you see crows aligning themselves more with urban and suburban areas and ravens kind of align themselves more with rural areas agricultural areas with where there might be some people but it's not you don't generally see them like in a downtown you know city area habitat can sometimes be a good clue (laughs) yeah
1: no I love that that's that's wonderful I love the your v versus c distinction on their tail because I'm like oh c for crow and v for Raven, <laughs> yes, <laughs> a little bit of a stretch there, but let's go with it.
0: <laughs> no, I say that in my head all the time. <laughs> oh, perfect. <laughs> awesome. Okay,
1: great. Um, so you you kind of I think already hit on this because you talked about how ravens are found, you know, in all continents from Antarctica and, you know, that they're opportunistic, but, you know, we know that they're found throughout Yellowstone National Park, Grand Teton National Park, and really the greater Yellowstone ecosystem as a whole. So, you know, we're wondering what makes this ecosystem a good one for ravens?
0: Yeah, it, it's a good question because you can, you, you look at Wyoming and, or Northwestern Wyoming, you say it's, it's a pretty harsh, habitat to live, especially in the winter, right? There's not a lot of food opportunities. And so how do these birds do it? They don't typically, you know, migrate south like you think of a lot of other songbirds doing. But Yellowstone and Grand Teton offer kind of this unique balance where there's people still kind of even throughout the winter, even in areas of Yellowstone that are closed all winter, you still get some some employees working there you get there's trash to eat occasionally there there are resources right when wolves were reintroduced into the park in 1995 that brought this whole other level of potential food resources for for ravens in the winter they really wolves provide food year-round i mean they kill things year-round to to eat Mm-hmm. You can't just eat in the winter, right? But in the summer, their kills decompose relatively quickly. And for ravens, there's lots of other food opportunities. They're not as reliant on those. But in the winter, you know those those kill sites freeze, and they might they might survive for weeks, and provide this kind of persistent food opportunity for lots of other scavengers, not just ravens, but um, bringing wolves back to the ecosystem really provided this like balance of, oh, there's not just food in the summer. There's consistent and reliable food across the landscape wow. um, year round. Right,
1: That is so interesting. That's nothing I never would have thought of that as wolves as sort of acting as these providers for other species by, yeah, by being there throughout the winter months, you know, The topic of wolves and ravens comes up a lot together. Can you tell us anything else you know about the sort of more unique relationship between wolves and ravens?
0: There are a lot of anecdotal stories about the relationship between wolves and ravens and how, you know, ravens maybe follow wolves and, or (laughs) I've heard that ravens like mimic wolf howls to... You know, there are all sorts of stories about this, how, how they interact, and there's some mutualistic, you know, benefit there. Maybe um, I, I've heard uh, ideas about, you know, injured, you know, elk on the landscape and ravens are calling the wolves in to kill it for them so they can, you know, all sorts of things that, like, you, you know, may or may not actually actually be happening, but Um, But it's really interesting because these stories are persistent throughout, you know, modern culture and then going back to a lot of Native American stories about relationships between these species. So it's clear that there's some important relationship there. And primary one is that wolves are being this food resource Mm -hmm. for ravens year round. And they rely on wolves to not only provide these Carrying opportunities but also they see wolves as a sign of like oh like we recognize this this food resource this is like not scary this is like something we expect this is how it's supposed to happen ravens are really you call we call it neophobic so there's um, often very cautious about new scenarios and new uh new things on the landscape um and even new food resources and so If you just went out and threw an elk carcass, you know, on the landscape, ravens might fly over it and look at it, but they'd be like, I don't know. I don't know about that, That there's no, yeah, I haven't gotten, yeah, I haven't gotten a signal that this is a safe place to eat from. And so they don't necessarily come down to eat it, but if there's wolves at it, then they'll say, oh, that's, that's how it's supposed to be.
1: Interesting. Oh, that's so fascinating. So, so clearly there's something going on there between ravens and wolves, perhaps even beyond this, like you described wolves as being a, providing a food source for ravens throughout the winter, but more study might be needed on that one.
0: There's a, there's a lot of study. Yeah. <laughs> there's a lot of places to go and a lot of folks are working on it. So.
1: Cool. Very interesting. Um, Another thing that comes up often when people are talking about ravens is their intelligence. So can you sort of characterize their intelligence for us? You know, like maybe where do they kind of rank in the animal kingdom related to their smarts? How can we tell that they're intelligent creatures? Like what's, you know, what's that about?
0: Yeah. So one way that um, biologists um, try to measure intelligence in animals is by a like, brain to body size ratio. And if you look at different groups of animals, so you look at fish and insects and birds and mammals, and, um, you know, birds and mammals typically have larger brain sizes relative to their bodies compared to all, all these other groups of animals, right? Amongst mammals, you know, primates have larger brains and then humans have like kind of the pinnacle brain size to body size ratio. If you look at some other mammals. Um, you know, like porpoises have exceedingly large brains for their body size, um, and we we recognize them as very intelligent animals. Also, um, amongst birds, corvids and parrots, their ratios align very closely um, with the primate line. So they're not human intelligent, but they are maybe chimpanzee intelligent the crow for American crows their um, brain to body size ratio is very close to a chimpanzee which is when you look at what they can do and they use tools and they can solve puzzles um, and a lot of corvids can do this you know that that makes sense like other primates do this these same tasks right so
1: Um, you mentioned the word corvid so that just to clarify that's the the family of birds that ravens crows magpies think belong to is there anybody else in that group
0: yes so um the jays are in there so stellar's jays blue jays um and clark's nutcrackers okay um and in yellowstone also um canada jays
1: okay awesome so we got a whole little pack of smarties in that group yes. <laughs> awesome <laughs> cool um so I mean, speaking of the intelligence of Ravens, I happen to know that our producer, Emmy, has a bit of a story about getting robbed by a Raven in Yellowstone once. So I don't know, Emmy, if you want to come off mute and tell us that story, I think it would be
2: awesome. Well, I will say luckily I didn't get robbed, but I did get um my bag did get assaulted by a raven. My family and I were snowmobiling on the roads in Yellowstone during the winter, and I was very aware that ravens can get into backpacks. And so I was like, "Okay, let's You know, when we would stop to get off of the thermal feature that all of our stuff was covered up or we were taking it with us. Um, And somehow my backpack got like smushed at the bottom of like all of our um, bags and cold weather stuff. And there was like a five inch area where a raven like may be able to get in. But I was like, there's no way it's there's no way I don't have any food in my bag. We're just going to go check out this thermal feature and come back. And it's gone for maybe five minutes. Like it was right by the parking lot and it was just like, you know, some steamy stuff. So we came back and wouldn't you know, there is this beautiful large black bird just hanging out by our snowmobile and is like just hanging out. And I see like a little pile next to it. I was like, crap. So I'm like running in the snow as fast as i can and of course it's like not really phased by me but when i get a little closer it's like ah okay i'll leave um again luckily i didn't have any food in there but it had opened that little area grabbed my zipper opened it up it pulled out an extra hat that i had i think it pulled out an extra pair of gloves that i have and then it pulled out this little container i had of aquifer like a little tube it had punctured a hole right through that (laughs) And, like, maybe decided, oh, like, oh, this isn't worth it. And then he just was hanging out till we got back. And so I was like, well, it's freezing cold and windy, and now I can't, like, definitely didn't want to use that tube of aquifer on my face. Um, so I had, like, very chapped-lipped and face the rest of our trip. and You would have been fine. <laughs> <laughs> I totally should have. And then I just realized, like, ah, I am just – in awe of getting outsmarted by a bird and really underestimating him and being like, there's, there's no way, man, there's no way he can get it. And he got in there and I'm glad he just didn't like fly off with my hat. Cause then I would have been cold later that day. <laughs> I
1: love it. I like the idea that he was going in there to take your hat, your gloves and your aquifer to put them all on and, you know,
2: <laughs> he's like, I'm gonna be so fashionable and ready for winter. So yeah, that was my like, <laughs> yeah. very where I felt I had been so ready to combat the Raven's mischievousness. And I realized I am no better than anyone else. You were
0: outsmarted. <laughs> I was. No, it, it's a very common <laughs> story. I mean, it's a story I've heard before something very similar, right? Um, like I was mentioning earlier, like even in the winter, there are some people that go into the interior of Yellowstone, and if they're not employees that are stationed there, they're probably i mean even if they are employees they're they're traveling by snowmobile, and the birds know they recognize the sound of them and they'll follow them, and they know that people probably have food in there um, and i I have heard stories of i mean. Raven's stealing all sorts of stuff, like people's keys, people's wallets, like whatever. Like, and once, you know, sometimes you think like they see you and they're like, they know that you want whatever you, <laughs> whatever they've taken back. And like, it's all purposeful somehow. And I don't know. Um, but you can see a little glint in their eyes sometimes. Yeah. They're yeah. like,
1: we got to give <laughs> yeah. these folks a good story. Let's have some fun. <laughs> awesome. Well, thanks for sharing that, Emmy. That was amazing. So Lauren, when we were, I swear, not creepily, but definitely Googling you, uh, to learn more about your work, we found this amazing photo of you holding a banded raven, like a prized chicken in a parking lot somewhere in Yellowstone, which, uh, Emmy is going to go ahead and drop on our podcast page. If anyone wants to check that out, Lauren, can you tell us a little bit about that day and what sort of research you were conducting with that bird?
0: Yeah. So one of the um, great things about working with the Yellowstone bird program is we have all these monitoring projects. We get to go all over the park and work with all these different species. Um, but we also work with outside researchers that want to come into Yellowstone and do um, kind of more in-depth hands-on research that our own team can't necessarily do um, just logistically. Um and so there is a team of folks, um, John Marsleff from the University of Washington, who was my graduate advisor. And then um, Matthias Loreto, uh, he's from the Max Planck Institute of Animal Behavior in Germany. And they um, we're were coming to Yellowstone to try to catch ravens, put Ban, ban them, but also attach um, transmitters to some of them to track movements around the park. Um, see what they could um, figure out, kind of what habitats they were using uh, in the summer versus winter for pair uh, birds that were uh, belonged to breeding pairs versus kind of unpaired birds, males versus females. But also um, kind of in the context of now that wolves are in the park like how how do ravens utilize areas where there are wolves and could we use these transmitters to figure out if there is maybe a closer relationship with wolves and you know there are wolves out there that have gps collars we have birds now that have transmitters maybe we can see some of the oh this raven was following that wolf pack or something some of those behaviors um so that was kind of the general idea behind that research. It's ongoing. They're working on writing up some stuff right now. Um but that bird was uh, I think that one was down at um I think that bird uh in that photo we caught down by Old Faithful. Um and so I'm thinking it was November so the roads had maybe just closed to the public. Um so there wasn't a lot of people around you know, it hadn't been that long since the roads have been open. And so we, we, um, put out some bait and have, um, they catch them with, um, like rocket nets. So you put bait out and then kind of have the rocket net hidden off to the side and you can, um, detonate or not detonate. You can, um, shoot the net off remotely from a distance. So the bird you kind of hide in your car if it's cold enough or you hide behind the building or whatever and kind of peek around the corner and wait for the birds to come in and um and then hopefully you can set off the net and you can catch them
1: wait so rocket net is that literally what it sounds like like you shoot a net at the bird and it sort of expands and pretty
0: much yeah so the, the idea is that the birds on the ground and um you know we'd bait them in with all sorts of like you know enticing you know Frozen Costco pizza, Um, (laughs) white bread, whatever it is, you know, a raven wants to eat. And um, it's the net is in this kind of big box. And essentially, when you shoot it off, it has four pins that kind of are each corner of the net. And they weigh it down and it shoots. The idea is that it shoots over the raven and then kind of falls down on it.
1: That just sounds like straight out of Inspector Gadget or something. That's amazing. I hope I get a witness. That it, someday. it works about, <laughs> you know,
0: um, a 10th of the time. <laughs> oh, okay.
1: okay. So it's, perhaps a little more. It's a very, yeah. I would
0: say Inspector Gadget could probably do it better than we did. Um,
1: okay. Fair enough.
0: <laughs> they're, they're just tricky birds to catch. And then the nets are finicky as well. So.
1: Yeah. Well, when you, when you talked about them being, you know, suspicious or skeptical of new things, I would imagine that would actually make them pretty difficult though, uh, you know, who can resist a frozen Costco pizza. So there is that.
0: Well, yeah, we spent many, many days in the freezing cold, not catching birds, watching (laughs) piles of food being eaten by magpies or, you know, some other bird, but um, not the birds we're trying to catch.
1: Amazing. Uh, Smart. Um, You know, through the, course of your time at Yellowstone, or actually just through your whole career, you know, is there anything that you have learned about Ravens that has surprised you?
0: I don't know, surprised, I think, um, you know, that I always, you know, I had always read about the neophobia, and actually seeing how suspicious and cautious they really are, when, you know, at the same time, like, if you're a tourist in Yellowstone, you're a visitor and you're at a parking lot with picnic tables, they'll like walk right up to you and like almost like grab it out of your hand sometimes. Yeah. They, they just seem to know if you, <laughs> if you're up to no good. Um, so that was, that was one thing that was surprising to me, like how, how difficult it was to catch them. Um, and then some of the things that we learned from that project, like I said, it's, it's ongoing, but kind of the early takeaways where we saw birds that were just moving tremendous distances. Um, you know, we had birds flying from Gardner to Canyon back and forth, like almost every day to go see if there was food um, at Canyon in the winter. Um, and then coming back to the Gardner area to roost. Um, we had birds that left Yellowstone and went all the way up to Saskatchewan, like, over 400 miles, like what, what, yeah, like an adult bird, like what was it doing? Yeah, Um, amazing. So yeah, really interesting movements and just behaviors that uh, we would never know about without the transmitters. So that was really Mm -hmm. cool. So
1: they're just kind of full of surprises, it
0: sounds like. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
1: You know, one one other thing that ravens are known for are their mimicry skills. So you mentioned earlier that, you know, there's some maybe theories about ravens like mimicking wolf howls. Um, is there anything else interesting that you've either heard yourself or, you know, you know, colleague has witnessed when it comes to a raven mimicking something?
0: You know, I have not heard them um, mimicking speech or, you know, you hear lots of things on the on the Internet about. You know, um, captive bred ravens have mimicked speech and things like that. But um, I have not witnessed that in the wild. Um, I have heard other corvids. So lots of corvids do this or have the capacity to do this, right? Um, Crows can do this. I've heard both Stellar's Jays and Blue Jays mimic um, red-tailed hawks. Oh. So what I have heard from ravens is, or what I've experienced is that even what sounds like, you know, normal bird noises or whatever you know they're not mimicking something specifically um they just have an incredible range of like vocal abilities like they can make this really deep croaking sounds and then also some really high-pitched kind of noises so it, there's a, yeah it's just amazing what the ranges that they can do. And that is because they're a songbird and they have
1: very cool. Amazing. Um my next question, I suspect, is something maybe slightly self-serving that got dropped in here by lovely producer Emmy, but we're gonna go ahead and ask it, which is is it possible to become friendly with a raven by enticing it with shiny objects? Not that you would ever do this in Yellowstone, just theoretically.
0: Oh, could you, of course not. Um, you
1: know, make offerings?
0: <laughs> <laughs> um I would say if you wanted to become friendly with a raven, the best offering would probably be some sort of food object. Um, So there's lots of um, stories and maybe you guys have heard. um, There was a girl in Seattle that would get gifts from a crow. She would feed the crows and um, the crows would bring her little trinkets or pieces of trash or whatever, um, whatever they thought was, you know, cool and shiny they would bring to her so there are stories like that and, and Ravens have done the same. I've never received a gift from a Raven or a crow. <laughs> um, but I think the, I think your best strategy is if you're going for it is to be consistent and to provide a, a food source. They like peanuts a lot. Um, give them like peanuts in the shell. My advisor used to, to say this a lot, John, um, peanuts in the shell, like they make kind of a noise. So like, there's that connection and it's like a signal. If you throw them on the ground, like they'll, they'll hear it and they'll know. Um, and then they get a little puzzle, you know, trying to, you know, open them up and play with them. So it's rewarding on yeah. multiple levels.
1: <laughs> I like it. That resonates. Cause I think if somebody was trying to befriend me, if they gave me a like consistent food treat, that would be a pretty good way to do it. So yeah. checks out. Yeah. So we are, as I mentioned earlier, you know, kind of celebrating Halloween with this raven episode. So uh, do you happen to have any interesting, maybe more spooky raven facts that you could share with us? Maybe anything that they do that's a little unsettling?
0: So there's so much like cultural association with ravens and crows with death and... Edgar Allan Poe and there, all this like darkness surrounding them. And that's probably because they eat carrion. <laughs> they eat dead things um, when when they can. I, can. I don't know something specifically spooky about ravens. Um, I did have a colleague in graduate school that studied crows and she looked at what she called crow funerals Essentially, like when they would see a um, a sibling or a parent or a, a dead crow that they recognize, they, you know, congregate um, or they, you know, they've been known to congregate um, around that bird. So there, I've not heard of that specifically with with ravens, but there's a lot of lore about, you know, these big black birds. <laughs> um that eat dead things that, (laughs) that could, that could be interpreted as spooky and um, (laughs) Halloween-y.
1: Yeah, certainly. Well, thanks for humoring us with that one.
2: Yeah.
1: (laughs) Awesome. So we did get quite a few listener questions um, about ravens and other corvids. So we're going to transition now into asking a few of those. Okay. Kicking us off, Ryan from New Jersey is wondering What the best way to tell ravens and crows apart is if you aren't looking at them side by side? So I think you did touch on some of this earlier, but just to reiterate, if you're just looking at a raven, there's not a little crow around to compare it to, what kinds of things are you looking for?
0: Yeah. So again, I would look at the bill and I would look at the tail. So the tail shape is like a, is a pretty good one. Kind of that on um, crows, all their tail feathers are basically the same length. So when it's spread out, it makes that kind of C-shaped curve. Um, and a raven, their middle tail feathers are longer. And so it makes kind of that V-shape. Um, and then the ravens just have this really chunky, big bill.
1: Okay. I heard something about this once. I want you to check this for me. Go check me against this. That if they are like perched and calling that um a crow and i know sorry ryan from new jersey we're comparing with crows again a crow will kind of like duck up and down when it calls it'll be like a little bob like caw caw but a raven will more like shrug its shoulders like (laughs) rock listeners can't see that i'm doing this right now but does that is that something that you've noticed or heard that there's sort of like a different like a bobbing of the crow versus a sort of shrugging of the raven
0: um I have not noticed that. That's interesting. Um, But you did touch on the other like big clue, which is the sound that they Mm -hmm. make, right? So crows are definitely more of a caw, caw sort of sound. And while I did say earlier that ravens make a wide range of, Mm -hmm. you know, of calls and sounds and they have a big vocal um, repertoire, they typically they'll make these more like kind of deeper almost like honking sounds sometimes, or, um, you know, they don't do the call.
1: Okay. Okay. Yeah. Awesome. All right. Moving on. Next question. Uh, Leah from California is wondering if you can tell us what is known about Ravens ability to remember human faces.
0: Hmm. Okay. So they, I, they can, um, I don't know specifically, Uh, you know, off the top of my head, I'm more familiar with studies that looked at crows facial recognition. Um, That was through my same graduate lab. They looked at crows in the Seattle area and they wore like these crazy masks and walked through, you know, they captured some crows wearing the masks and then would walk around to see um, after the fact if the crows like gave alarm calls and things like that, like in recognition of like this this person that did this horrible thing to them, right? This traumatic event that they had. They absolutely found that the crows remember those kind of scary faces. And not only that, but they passed on that knowledge to their, their offspring and the, the next generation. So there are still, bir- I mean, that study was done the late 2000s. Um, and there are still birds in Seattle that, that recognize those masks. So it's, it's pretty amazing.
1: I mean, even though like those birds didn't have that negative interaction, they've been taught.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So they, they witnessed other, other birds reacting to that, to that scary mask and said, Oh yeah, that's a social cue that that's a scary person. And they remember it was, that was enough for them to then also recognize and remember that face. So amazing. Yeah.
1: Amazing. Though, again, like with the food treats, I got to say, I guess if I was abducted by somebody wearing a mask, I would probably remember it for the rest of my life and tell everybody I knew
0: as well. But, yeah. um, I think a lot about what birds, you know, what they're processing, like when we capture them and band them and like, it must be like some alien abduction, right? There's gotta be some oh, absolutely. PTSD in there.
1: <laughs> absolutely. I can only, can only imagine. Um. Okay, onward. Sam from Wyoming is wondering why ravens are totally black.
0: Uh, that's a great question. Um, I i don't know the, off the top of my head, the lineage or whatever, you know, the genetic lineage that would lead up to ravens that, I mean, I don't know that we that we could know what color they were. Ravens do live often in cold environments, or at least environments that are cold- um, or have very you know harsher winters and are um, relatively cold at least a good chunk of the year. Um, so I imagine that it's probably due to some sort of like heat retention or absorption, um, or at least that gives them some kind of benefit in that environment.
1: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense actually.
0: But I'm I'm shooting off the cuff there, so don't
1: don't well, do that one. <laughs> Educated guess. All right, Sam, you got it here. Educated guess that it could be a, a heat absorption <laughs> thing. So that does make sense, though. All right, onward. Nile from Montana is wondering how the intelligence of ravens compares to that of cats or dogs.
0: I would say that ravens are probably a bit more—I don't know—more intelligent. Um, maybe than than cats. I, I you could see dogs. Dogs can do similar things in terms of puzzle solving and um, at least some breeds. So, you know, it all depends on how you measure intelligence, right? Um, cats probably could, they just don't want to. So <laughs> Don't I know it?
1: <laughs> no, that's fair. Yeah, of course, we're always sort of measuring intelligence by our our own human standards. But, you know, earlier you had mentioned that ravens might be somewhat equivalent to like chimpanzees. So I feel like that's a really interesting benchmark
0: yeah they do um fall above like the average kind of mammal brain to body size ratio line so yeah
1: all right uh moving on uh jamie from montana is wondering what we know about how ravens communicate so we have spent some time talking about their vocal range and you know sort of the different um abilities they have there do we know anything about how they communicate with each other
0: yeah. I mean, those, those vocal signals are um, really important. They're talking to their, you know, their mate, if they're, if they're a mated um, breeding pair, it, it, even if they're not, if they're um, a younger bird or just a bird that hasn't you know, found a territory yet, hasn't found a mate, they still rely on kind of that community of birds that they, um, that they roost with every night or that just, kind of live in the same area. Um, Talked before about how they were very neophobic. So a young bird might get clues that an area is safe or, um, you know, a piece of food is safe if there's another raven already there. And so oftentimes when you see like a a kill site or something, they'll get adult birds are usually the first ones on there. The, The territorial breeding pair that's in the area knows the area really well they feel safe they're going to be the first ones there and then gradually kind of these non-territorial younger birds sometimes kind of filter in and and it kind of grows almost exponentially like you get a couple in and all of a sudden they're all like oh okay it's fine we can all come in like and they you hear lots of vocalizations and they're calling and part of that is because the younger non-territorial birds can't really compete with the, the breeding pair that, that lives there year round until they get enough of them. You know, if once they have a crowd, then they can actually get in and get a bite, you know? So, um, so there's, there's a lot of communication that goes on. There's a lot of vocalizations and there's a lot of nuance to it as well.
1: Fascinating. Okay. Thank you for that. Last listener question. Rowan from Ireland observes that many human cultures and traditions have stories and mythologies that are centered on ravens. So ravens seem to have long played an important role in how humans make sense of the world. From your perspective as a biologist, why do you think that is? Is there something special about ravens and their relationship with humans that makes them particularly compelling to people?
0: It's an interesting question because He's right like ravens are so widespread across the globe and really there are stories that, about them in in human cultures from around the globe as well. Uh, to me I, I mean I obviously I can't say but I, I I think um it's because they are so adaptable and so opportunistic. They like find a way to to live and survive and be successful in all of these really harsh places right and they, they make it work their kind of ingenuity in, in in doing that is really impressive and kind of inspiring I think sometimes
1: yeah that really resonates you know I guess if you're a human trying to do something similar which is to say you know survive in a harsh environment and you're looking to the world around you for cues on how to do that um, you would be noticing how other creatures and animals like ravens are, are pulling it off. So
0: yeah, I think that you gotta, out. You gotta be adaptable. You got to eat the seeds and the fruit in the summer and the, <laughs> and the, frozen, and the frozen, we'll- frozen meat in the winter. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Yum. Um, Okay, just a few final questions for you. Uh, First, if people want to learn more about ravens in Yellowstone, ravens and wolves, or just maybe corvids in general, you know, do you have any recommendations of where they can go, what they can read, what they can watch? Um, Any sources come up for you? Yeah.
0: um, I mean, there's a couple books that I I have read that I really enjoyed. Um, One is called Mind of the Raven by Bernd Heinrich. John Marsleff has a book, called In the Company of Crows and Ravens. And um, he talks a lot actually about kind of the cultural mythological stories behind behind both of those birds. So that's, that would be a great read for your, your, um, your listener that was interested in that. Um, if you're interested specifically in Ravens in Yellowstone, um, we did just... Put a book out (laughs) um, about Yellowstone birds. And there is a whole chapter on Ravens that talks about the recent research, their relationship with wolves in the park and all these things. So
1: great. What's the title of of that piece?
0: So that book is called Yellowstone's birds. Pretty straightforward. Um, Yeah. So you should be able to find it in bookstores and online in, in bookstores in the park. It is it's out as of a couple of weeks ago.
1: Oh, wonderful. Brand new. All right. So we will go ahead and put some links to more information about those books in the show notes. Um, classic podcast question for you. We ask all of our guests this. Do you have a conservation hero?
0: That's a great question. I mean, there's so... Like, hmm. <laughs> so I always say that, I don't know if I would call her a conservation hero, but As a kind of inspiration for, you know, studying wildlife and birds in particular, um, I always think of Margaret uh, Morse-Nice, who was a early female ornithologist um, in the early 1900s. She she kind of took it upon herself to do these really detailed um, behavioral observations of song sparrows. She was an early um, bird bander and color banded birds and, and really paid really like nuanced attention and took a lot of, took a lot of notes that were really like instrumental to understanding behavioral patterns. And so she's kind of a, not only, you know, is she an an important early ornithologist, but she was a little bit groundbreaking. in the fact that she was a woman and kind of breaking into that, um, to that world as a woman wasn't always so easy. So.
1: Absolutely. That's a wonderful answer. Thanks for sharing that with us. Um, Okay. Final question. Probably the most important question of the whole podcast. What are you going to be for Halloween?
0: Oh gosh. Okay. So I I have two kids and my older one is a first grader and he's going as a skeleton. So I was convinced, was roped into (laughs) being a family of skeletons with him. So
1: Love it. Yeah. Okay. Appropriately spooky, classic. Right to it. Yeah. Wonderful. Okay. Lauren Walker, thank you so much for joining us on The Voices of Greater Yellowstone. It was really lovely to talk to you today.
0: Oh, thank you for having me.
1: A huge thank you to Lauren for joining us on the podcast and indulging all our questions about ravens, both scientific and maybe not so scientific. It's also pretty cool that she initially wanted to study the OG birds, dinosaurs, but eventually made the pivot to the feathered fowl we know today we hope you, dear listener, learned a lot about these clever corvids. We'll also place Lauren's book recommendations in the show notes so you can stock up on all your fall and winter reading. Also, little disclaimer, we definitely don't condone trying to make friends with ravens in the park, but just wanted to learn a little more about the shiny object theory please don't feed ravens because they'll probably just rob you anyway. And that would really hurt your feelings. So let them use their smarts instead. Okay. Just kidding. Just don't feed the wildlife. Voices of Greater Yellowstone is a podcast by the Greater Yellowstone Coalition, where producer Emmy and I work in the communications and marketing department. The Greater Yellowstone Coalition is a conservation nonprofit that works with all people to protect the lands, waters, and wildlife of the Greater Yellowstone ecosystem. If you enjoyed this episode or any of our episodes, please consider giving us a review on whatever is your podcast platform of choice. Or if you're listening on our website, tell a friend about Voices of Greater Yellowstone. We want to share these stories and the science of Greater Yellowstone far and wide and foster a love for this wild ecosystem. As always, thank you for tuning in and we'll see you next time.